refrain and singing, just singing in the rain. You're listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. This is a podcast where we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser-known films that we think deserve greater attention. I do not have a joke for this one because it would require me to sing. (laughs) (laughs) Joining us for the first time ever is... (laughs) is our good friend of the podcast... Katie Patterson. How are you, Katie? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, For those of you that don't know Katie, um, tell us a bit about yourself. I'm a a PhD researcher and theatre maker. I sneak musicals into all of my work, even when it's meant to be really serious. Brilliant. We've never met you before. (laughs) (laughs) We're meeting meeting for the first time. We've uh, We've never recorded a whole episode of a podcast that got lost no. for technical reasons. No, for... But today's pick is Sing in the Rain, Stanley Donan and Gene Kelly's film from 1952. In 1927 Hollywood, a silent film production company and cast make a difficult transition to sound. So guys, what do you think? Good or bad, Sing in the Rain? Love it. Love it. Good movie! Like it a lot! Oh, Charlie! No, no, sorry, I just didn't want to say the same thing as you. I also love it, but I didn't want to be like, love it, love it, love it. Uh, No, yeah, obviously, great movie. It's a classical reason. I think it's only gained popularity the longer it's existed. I think, weirdly, it hasn't aged because it's set in a specific period of time before the film came out. Yeah, I think trying to be kind of cutting edge contemporary can be a quick way to make your film very dated. Whereas when you're setting it all in the past or a version of the past, it gets a bit, it's kind of grease. It's the grease thing of it's this weird 70s, 50s hybrid, but yeah. somehow that makes it less of both. What's your what's your history with this film and singing in the rain? Because this is like a childhood iconic memory for me, really, is watching this film over and over again. I was familiar I imagine, like a lot of people, I was familiar with nearly all of the songs in Sing in the Rain before I ever sat down to watch it all the way through. I watched it all the way through fairly recently, but there wasn't that many moments where I was watching it thinking, oh, this has changed my perception of it. It's very much the same film, partly because it's not a huge amount of plot. I saw it uh, as a kid. I think it's a doorline with a lot of the classical Hollywood films on this podcast. I saw them with my dad as a kid first. Then I saw it a second time at uni and a third time a few days ago. But yeah, Sing in the Rain. Where to start? I suppose the easiest thing is just say, favourite song. I I think it's tricky because it depends what you what you define as a song, really. Because I think oh. some of the dance, some of the numbers, you know, the best dancing isn't necessarily the best song. I mean, I think Good Morning is where, like, best, the, best the number. things The best number. Meet. Okay. Yeah. Like, Good Morning is kind of thrilling. But then Sid Charisse dancing in the bizarre, let's put a dream sequence in so we can have brighter colours. Okay, you know, I... that, that's, like... Iconic, iconic. I, I think Moses is another one where there is some really amazing dancing oh, so alongside a really funny song. What's the relationship between Moses and uh, The Rain in Spain from My Fair Lady? Because they're both songs about tongue twisters. And I couldn't get <laughs> it out of my head when I was watching it. Well, they're both built around tongue twisters that have very similar structures. So yeah, yeah, and they're all set in a uh, diction class. Yeah. yeah, that's the connection. Yeah. D- diction coaches are, for some reason, they are so engaging as as plot devices because you know they reveal so much about the characters they're teaching it it's a moment of transformation for the characters except in singing the rain it really isn't <laughs> 
Because Lena's diction doesn't change. In, in, in the way that you know, Eliza Although Lena's, Lena's diction coach is, Terrible. I mean, scene stealing. Like, <laughs> she's got, like, what, like 10 seconds on screen? And she's she, so mean. She has stayed with me my entire no, life. She's not when mean. When she's like, can't. And she's so proud of herself. She's like, I've nailed that. She's, I don't even know what that actress's name is, but I have never, she, my whole life, I've been like, that scene, that's she, in my she's head like a somewhere. Gran, she's like a grand dame. She's such yeah. a grand dame. You're like, has she had a 50 year career no, in the yeah. theater? Like, she's I, I, dealing with the worst students. I'm very, look, I'm very protective. I said she's mean because I'm protective of Lena. I love justice for Lena. I think she's I think she's amazing in this yeah. movie. Lena will be fine though. Lena will Lena's the head of the Justice for Lena committee. <laughs> oh, Lena. It's a great performance and I get that he's Gene Kelly and that Don Lockwood is this movie star, but at the same time the movie frames it that he could do better than her. I feel like she'd get bored with him really quickly. Well, and they just don't know each other, right? Like that's yeah, you know, not, their entire relationship out. is fictional. Yeah. And he's not interested in her because he's a kind of an arrogant prick, which I think is not is not a controversial statement. No. Um I don't know whether or not Gene Kelly sees him as that, but the fact that he comes across as that in the movie and is played by Gene Kelly, <laughs> who He's no Fred Astaire, I'll say that, who's apparently a lovely guy. Another thing, Debbie Reynolds is so young in this movie. It's basically her first movie, like, so she makes one before this, but I love this thing of she won a beauty pageant in Burbank, and then the studio heads flipped a coin for who got to sign her. Uh, So I think she got, Warner Brothers won the coin toss, and then quite quickly she got released from that, and MGM snapped her up. But she hadn't danced before. What I do know is that Gene Kelly specifically requested Sid uh, Cherise for the dance number because Debbie Reynolds wasn't, which I'm not complaining about necessarily. But also, we love Sid Cherise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I think she was n- like 19 when she was cast and singing in the rain. She's 20 when this comes out. And like put into that situation with yeah. domineering Gene Kelly, who is not only bullying you, but bullying Donald O'Connor. <laughs> like, do a backflip. And he's like, I can't do that anymore. I was like, tw- I've seen you do it before. I was like 20. Such a weird job to be an actor. Like, what's your workplace bullying? It's about this guy is telling me I have to do a backflip. Like, literally jump through hoops, jump through walls. <laughs> like, That's not your classic workplace mediation, is it? But, but the like... other thing is that that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, you don't get a job in which someone bullies you. Yeah, that's true. You're like, I'm so lucky to be here with this guy. But yeah, good movie. <laughs> like... Oh God, it's just, I mean, I think it's so, I, I find it interesting watching it as an adult because I watched it 40 times, probably. I watched oh, wow. it a lot as a child. And I used to skip the boring bits, by which I mean the two times that Gene Kelly sings bland love songs to Debbie Reynolds, um, <laughs> because I found them uninteresting. <laughs> so oh, I'm, you, you su- mean I'm always surprised by them when they come up in the film, and I'm like, oh, I don't really remember this bit. Whereas the rest, I can like recite, you know, beat for beat. How do you feel about them now? Um, I still think they're the least interesting part of the film. It gives you a different relationship to it, whereas you know, Good Morning and Moses Supposes. And they're bangers. Like, all of those, I'm just like, I'm in heaven every single time. So what do we think of the title track, Singing in the Rain? That was amazing. Yeah, okay, great. okay. Yeah. <laughs> but what I want to talk about is that these songs weren't written for this movie. These are songs no. that MGM just owned. They were older songs, and that's the reason why the film is set uh, in the 30s, in the 20s, actually. I mean, they weren't all, you know, written in the 20s, but there is something, like, very old-fashioned about them. Like, Singing in the Rain appears earlier in, like, very, very early sound footage with uh, Buster Keaton and Joan Crawford are in it. Cool. <laughs> like, all sing it as like a chorus number. But 
so few of these songs relate to the plot at all, such as the plot is. Yeah, Moses Supposes, like, it's actually the most relevant song to the plot. Because it's tied because to it's, the setting. It's about having to speak on film, just about, or it starts because of that. Whereas, yeah, Singing in the Rain, I mean, it's obviously, like... It's a beautiful, it's beautifully danced. It's so much fun. Like, it's lovely. It it's looks so amazing. joyful. But again, you're like, well, he's already fallen for her. He's already sung her a love song. And now we're just getting a bit of kind of, I'm in a happy relationship, it's which also, is nice. But like, it's not really moving the plot forward. And it's also right after Good Morning, which is the celebratory song for them. Yeah. Well, narratively, it's like the main characters put together this very early sound film which after the first preview completely flops because it's rubbish so the three of them get together and brainstorm a way of saving it and they decide to turn it into a musical they look at the clock they're like oh it's already midnight let's sing good morning and that's their celebratory happy song but singing in the rain was originally written as the we saved the film song they were meant to sing that together which does make sense but then i can see well firstly obviously i can see why they just why Gene Kelly wanted it for himself. But, you know, they just, again, they kind of sneak it in that he's he's driven her home. They've sung Good Morning. He's driven her home. He's dropped her off. He's very happy. And he does his happy dance. I yeah. mean, it's literally what he does. He does a happy dance. But... Thema- thematically, it's a weird song because singing in the rain, the implication is things are bad, but I'm smiling. Yeah. Things aren't bad. Everything Everything's is great. Are, everything is great for <laughs> this guy. It's just literally raining. <laughs> Like, there's like, no metaphor here. Yeah, that's what I love about I'm it. I'm very happy and it's raining. Andrew so. Lloyd Webber would love this movie. <laughs> it's not. Um, we have to talk about the most bizarre, inexplicable, narratively nothing musical number, which is, of course, Beautiful Girl. Uh, I think Broadway Melody is the most inexplicable. But Beautiful, no, Beautiful Girl because is like a Gene montage. Gene Kelly's of... not even in Beautiful Girl. Sure, but like, Beautiful Girl, it's a montage of like Hollywood scrambling to put sound on film. I, I love that sequence, actually. Oh, I don't get me wrong. I love that sequence so much. Okay. But it's the one where you're watching it and you're just like, sorry, what what's happening? <laughs> like... But once you kind of, on this rewatch, I kind of had more of an understanding of what I think they were trying to achieve with that scene, which was, yeah, this is weird. There's this new technology and we don't fully know how to do it. So there's like this cacophony of discordant musical sequences just sort of hitting against each other, none of them being that good altogether. So I think it's really effective, and I think it is. I think it's one of the most interesting moves this movie takes, so it's not just, you know, a nostalgia piece. It is actually doing something a little weird. Yeah, which Which I I really like. Like, all of them in their little, like, archways in these crazy outfits, and they're, like, trying to hold still, but they're doing it really badly. Like, they're really, like, shaking, and it's just... Oh, I love I love it. The the other thing about it, I think that sequence, it's weird that it's in Technicolor. Like, if it's meant to be, you know, the films we're putting on, but it's filmed like it's a film rather than filmed like it's on set... Yeah. Then it should look like a film from that period, like... Um, the dancing the, cavalier, the, the, or the, the jazz singer, the dueling yeah. cavalier, the dueling cavalier. <laughs> and we could gush about this film all night, and yeah. we probably will to an extent. But there are other films to gush over. But talking about our favourite bits of the movie, I, I just want to draw attention to Broadway Melody. It sounds like the Laughing Cavalier is going to be a bad film. <laughs> The the Dancing Cavalier. Cavalier, What did I say again? The Laughing Laughing. Cavalier. Oh my God. Um, Um, Yeah, The Dancing Cavalier The Dancing Cavalier sounds terrible. The conceit of a contemporary person getting hit on the head and imagining he's in the French Revolution would be a bad musical. (laughs) 
but it is reflective of the way a lot of Hollywood studio heads would have approached the issue where it's like, oh, we have all this footage about the French Revolution and we have all these modern 1920s songs. How do we put that together? But I do think the thing that really makes the Dancing Cavalier potentially fall apart is we only see the Broadway melody section and then we're told, you know, diegetically that the end of that movie stays in the French Revolution. So it's not like we go into that world and then come back out and resolve this Broadway guy. It's like, no, no, we have this modern dance sequence and then we have a French Revolution story and we end still in the French Revolution story. It so, makes no sense. Like that is, it's possible that we're assessing the narrative credibility in a way that is not uh, the yeah, intention we're, of yeah, the we're critiquing, we're the narrative of the film within the film, which is kind of meant to be ridiculous and it's also meant to be less of a narrative and more of a vehicle for the musical numbers yeah. to, to play the way they are, which is kind of what Singing in the Rain itself Oh, there's that gorgeous montage when he's on the red carpet and he's doing this, like, he's, like, in this white coat and he's so, like, permatanned and he's doing all, like, dignity, always dignity. And then it's just so gorgeously intercut with all this, like, they're having a horrible time. They're, like, dancing in the smoky bar room as children. They've got this, like, amazing, this amazing violin number. Like, this is a fiddle. Yeah, it's kind of bold to be, like, we're just going to put this elaborate musical number together just for, like, a little basically joke in an opening sequence but like that so much storytelling work is done in such a short amount of time that not only this is this person's backstory but also how he feels in the present day about his backstory yeah. and i'd like i there are so many great bits of this movie but again that's never a part of the rest of the film he never has to reckon with the difference between his past and his fiction yeah that's actually such a good point everyone's just like he's like well it's all been a lie but here we are we're like the thing we've built up is more important, which... Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think that is how that goes. The film is all about artifice. Well, right down to the fact that Debbie Reynolds is dubbing Gene Hagen's voice. Mm. But the film never critiques the artifice, except for how it specifically affects the characters. The only time there's any critique is that, oh, she's not getting the credit she deserves for being the voice of this person, which is, you know... Hilarious because Debbie Reynolds was dubbed in the movie by someone who was uncredited. That, yeah. that is my favourite fact like, about this film. Do you it's... know one of the dubbers for Debbie Reynolds? Gene Hagen! Gene Hagen. <laughs> so not her it's singing. Not, you can't make that up. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Okay, so not the singing bits. The bit where she is dubbing Lena's voice in the dialogue scenes and she's got like a very breathy nothing can keep us apart that bit yeah our love will last till the stars you know this cold. film so much better than so me is, I love it I grew up on this film honest to god but yeah the whole like that whole era of Marnie Nixon especially like this is such standard Hollywood practice to just dub people all over the place what do you think do you think it still should be because some of the best musicals do have you know people dubbing the voice of really good screen actors. Yeah. A lot of the best musical theatre singers aren't great screen actors. Also, we have a lot of examples, especially with Tom Hooper being obsessed with having live audio recordings, which are rubbish and... Well, it is not live if you are going to edit it in a film editing suite afterwards and have a sound mix done. Like, this is not what live but, means. But the other thing Tom about... Hooper, I mean, shaking will... my fist at the sky of Tom Hooper, someone stop this man making Tom musicals. Hooper! Why? So we will never cover Les Mis, except we probably will. Uh, let's talk about Cosmo. 
because I love Donald O'Connor in this movie. Darling, darling Cosmo. He is a very nice boy. You know in the original script he ends up with Lena? What? <laughs> Which makes no sense. Did someone oh. tell them you've you've made a gay man? <laughs> That's my thing. He's... <laughs> oh. I mean, he might not be gay, but he's no, definitely, he's so... no, he's definitely no not way. Lena. So, what kind of baffles me is the red carpet montage. First of all, you have this amazing, like, seemingly Russian actress. Oh, oh God, yeah. With the kind of spider woman vibe and this amazing kind of headpiece. I really love She's... a 1950s costume designer having fun with the 20s. Like, that's really, that produces an aesthetic that she is looks to like, die for. She looks like Cher. Yeah. So there are a lot of in-jokes for people who... It's not like the artist now, where no one alive now will remember, you know, the transition to sound. But plenty of people watching Singing in the Rain for the first time will have been like, Oh, I remember, you know, silent yeah, movies. Yeah, because it's as if it was a film made now that was set in 1997. Yeah, exactly. Ex- so it's exactly. not it's not the distant past. It's just slipped into feeling like a different era, but actually everyone remembers it. It's almost like it's not a different era. It's the beginning of the era you're watching the movie in. It, so what I wanted to say about we might need to move this around or at least make it sound a bit more coherent is that <laughs> Cosmo getting like this big introduction on the red carpet, and I get that it's played for laughs that people think it's Don, and then are disappointed when it's not. But it's weird that he's even being interviewed at all, because at this point he's just the guy that plays piano on set. I don't think he's. I don't think he's being mistaken for Don. I think it's just. No, no. When he gets out a, the car, it's just a gag of they're like, someone's arrived at the red carpet. We're excited, and then she's like, oh, it's Cosmo, like my buddy, Does and they're have... all like, who? And then he doesn't. She doesn't really interview him. She's just like, hey guys, this is who this person is. Does he arrive in the same car as Don? No, no. Okay. no that's that that I said. Have, I thought he, Don arrives in like the. Yeah. Fascistic motorcade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he's the dictator of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Cosmo drives himself to the red carpet, hops out, and everyone's like, oh, and then they're like, oh, who's, oh, the, okay. who's this guy? I guess it's like it's a disappointment because he's a lower level celebrity. Not that no one had ever heard of him because, like, the gossip columnist knows who he is. Yeah. I'm just trying to get my head around the internal logic of Singing in the Rain, which I think is defeats the point of enjoying this movie. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that the yeah. most kind of, um, the time when you see the most love and real intimacy and connection from Don is absolutely with Cosmo. Like when, when they're pointing out each other's good dancing in Moses Supposes, you know, they take turns to like sit with the diction coach and be like, look, his feet, he's doing really well. Like that's when your Don is like, this is my partner in life. Look at him go. Well, so when he gets interviewed at the beginning and people expect him to talk about Lamont as his greatest inspiration. He talks about Cosmo. He just talks about Cosmo. And the whole thing is about him and Cosmo. You know, if you want to like go down the Don and Cosmo Alive Partners route, I think you don't have to bend very much. I also love the, like, how much time they take before revealing Lena's voice. Oh, yeah. I particularly appreciated that this time. (laughs) And it just lands so well because you're waiting for, like, oh, is he not letting her talk because, you know, he's a bully? He's like, no, it's because she sounds terrible. She's not allowed to talk, literally not allowed to talk in public. (laughs) But as soon as she starts talking in the film, she never stops and it's amazing. It's, oh, when she comes into the office and she's just in like all pink and she comes in and it's like, it says so right there. She's coming in. She's like, I, I'm more important to the studio. I have a contract. You have to do this. Like, like I have to like be on She's all the advocating time. for herself. And like, is she a good person? No, but like, she it, in doesn't a way, want, respect she doesn't, the hustle. Like, she doesn't pretend to be. No. That's, like, it's so refreshing. Yeah. What do you think of Kathy and Don's relationship? What relationship? 
Well, <laughs> do, the, do you think they have any chemistry? Obviously, as actors, they were not friends. But do you buy them as romantic partners, I, regardless of what you think Don's sexuality might be in real life? I think the reveal that she was his fan lessens it. Like, it kind of makes it creepier. It does. It, I kind of like the dynamic at the beginning that she's the one person who's never heard of him, and that hits him in the ego, and that's how they start the relationship. It's cliche, but it works. But then it's later revealed that she's seen all of his films, and that makes it so parasocial that it makes it seem like he's taking advantage of her. And again, yeah. never critique because and I don't know if this is Gene Kelly's contribution that he's playing you know to an extent a version of himself a song and dance movie star I don't know if he is deliberately making it so that his persona can't be questioned in the film that it's never going to be interrogated in the way that when we get to the bandwagon that that subverts it that he's playing against his Mm. Persona. Well, that Fred Astaire is playing against his persona. Yeah, that's yeah. Fred Astaire is. Uh, no, well, no as in we, we he's deconstructing yeah. his persona. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I mean. He's um, being critical of his persona. Yeah, in yeah. a way that Gene Kelly is, well, I'm Gene Kelly, I'm amazing. Uh, yeah, it's basically what, what, the, criter- who, the criterion for falling in love with that character is just that he is that character and that he like didn't want her to be fired for shoving a cake in someone's face. That's like, that's it. That's all it takes for her to fall in love because with him. Because he was bullying her in her place of work. Yeah. While she was getting paid. He was like gleefully harassing her for having been like, you jumped into my car, you're an asshole. And when she goes to a policeman, yeah, she's like, this guy just jumped into my car and he said, hey, kids. He's like, aren't you lucky? It's like, well, not you really. You fucking like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, They've got such a weird dynamic the more you look into it. And like, they're both very charming individually. Yeah. Together, it just doesn't really work. I, I do like that it's not really, it's not a real love triangle because I think that would be really grating. Because as little chemistry as he has with Kathy, he has none with Lena. No, and that's, that's much funnier. Like, they're, but they have chemistry in the sense that, like, their dynamic is more interesting to watch. Like, when they're doing the whole thing and the kissing scene and it's all this, like, oh, Donnie, you can kiss me like that. And he's like, I'd rather kiss a tarantula. And then he's like, get me a tarantula. Like, that whole scene, there's so much more <laughs> life from both of them than, like, all of the Kathy stuff. There, but she's just like, I'm pretty, you're pretty, I'm talented, you're talented. Here we are on screen together. Like, we're in love. We don't have to do any other work. Kathy on paper is so boring. It's just because she's played by Debbie Reynolds, who is just so charming naturally. Yeah, she's so radiant. so much energy that that character works. She doesn't have any funny lines. She does she? Um, the fact that we can't immediately think of any is probably not, not, not a not good sign. Winning. She has funny. She moments. gets some laughs, but yeah, like when she pops out of the cake or. But, but, but no, but yeah. that's that's a joke on uh, her. At her expense. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. She, she doesn't say anything funny. She, the bits where she's funny, there aren't. There isn't that much agency on her part, except for maybe when he jumps into the car and yeah, she's when kind she's of taking, when it, when it's so clear that she knows exactly who he is and she's taking the piss out of him, then that's quite funny. But they never. But they don't commit to that dynamic. Yeah. Because actually, it makes a lot of sense that he would go for someone who doesn't buy into his shit. But then, as soon as they spend any time together, she does buy into it. And you're like, ah, oh, Kathy, you have shown us that you have more critical faculties than this. Like, use them, please. And I beg of you. And he's still into her. Yeah. Just, uh... Yeah, and like, that is a really good dynamic of yeah. someone who isn't a fan and he can have a proper conversation with and can see him as a human. And also, you can respect, like, you can be a fan of somebody and still be critical of them like you and you know oh, you, you stopped doing this which i really liked and you kind of started phoning it in yeah. that, that could have been their dynamic 
Also, Don is, he's not a theatre person, but he is very influential. She doesn't want to work in film, at least from what she tells him at the beginning. She wants to work in theatre, and he kind of puts her into the studio system. And she's like, yay! I think that was just, that was just a line that they threw in there to look at 1927 and how cinema back then was considered cheap entertainment, whereas in the 50s it was starting to be more, it was starting to get its footing as a high art. Okay, but that's not in the film. Yeah, so much of it is set up without a punchline. Yeah. Like, so much of the satirical elements. I'm not saying this yeah. film isn't funny, but the satirical parts aren't that strong, except in doing the Marvel thing of just cultural references. Yeah. And, and yeah. if we're talking about satirizing high art versus low art movies versus theatre, there's well, at least one out of three films in this lineup that, that does it a bit better, I think. <laughs> I think there are two that do that. Yeah, at least one, at least one. At least one, yeah. I, I'd, but yeah, do you think that's a good point to move on to talk Let's about the bandwagon? Let's so, jump on the bandwagon. A show that is really a show sends you out with a kind of a glow and you say as you go on your way That's entertainment No death Like you get in Macbeth No ordeal the Bandwagon. 1953 film directed by Vincent Minnelli, one of my favorite musical directors of all time, uh, starring Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse in an actual speaking role this time around. Uh, Fred Astaire is playing uh, basically a satire of himself as an aging Hollywood musical actor who hasn't had a job in three years, he's kind of been forgotten and buried. So he's returning to New York, he's returning to Broadway, where his two playwright friends have put up a musical play for him to star in, and they hired Jeffrey Cordova to direct it. Except Jeffrey Cordova is a stuffy, pretentious theatre director and not really a genre person. Yeah. So... <laughs> Comedy ensues and, and stuff and things and music and dancing and situaries and it's and the, both of them are so like even even Fred Astaire they're both so sexy in this film and that's um, really ah, like the two of them together no I see it I the two of them together yeah yeah dancing uh, compared mm. to Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds I think that but they I have so much chemistry compared to Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse they have less chemistry I think the Broadway melody dance. I think the dancing is lovely in Bandwagon. I think they're lovely together, but I definitely feel like it's qu it's a polite kind of sexy. Not her so much in the in the girl hunt sequence where she's the blonde. Like she is full knockout, like incredibly sexy. I just don't get it from Fred Astaire. I don't think Fred Astaire. Oh, he's not... also very old in this film. Fred, <laughs> yes. Fred Astaire doesn't have a horny energy. No, he's, in the he's very polite, like yeah. lovely, he's charming, charismatic. But yeah, it's very. It's I just polite. think after Dancing in the Dark, the both of them have an orgasm. <laughs> they they lay down and stare at the sky in this like post orgasmic haze. I thought I no again. I just I think she's got all the sex appeal. She's bringing a lot like, to the table. Yeah, and, and I don't think that's a weakness of his. I think no, that she no. just has a very different energy. But I also totally understand why she would be attracted to him in a way that yeah. I don't in Singing in the Rain. Not with, with Kathy. Not not with Citrice yeah. in Singing in the Rain because she's not a real character. <laughs> yeah, in... she's just a wordless dancer. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but I, I buy their relationship more oh, than yeah. I expected to in the bandwagon. Also, we get the precedent, right? Like we meet her and she's with a man who maybe she's not dramatically older than her, but he's older than her and he's a director. And like, we just, we get this precedent for the kind of man she's attracted to. And Fred Astaire is like a nicer, more considerate, more human version of that archetype. The man that she's with at the beginning I don't know if he sees her as an extension of his choreography rather than as an artist in her own right, but also doesn't extrapolate her personality from her craft. And obviously with artists, it's tied together and it informs a huge amount of your identity, but you get the sense that Fred Astaire's character, I'm just going to call him Fred Astaire, I know he's called Tony, but the he is having conversations with her that are about the stuff that she's interested in, not just where her career's going. It's very clear which of these two men would still love her if she broke her ankle and could never dance again. But also, he, the choreographer, he reads to me as much more of a workaholic. Mm. And like They're all professionals and they're all very passionate, but part of, I think, their relationship is built around the fact that they are both obsessed with their work and they both work together. But there's this scene where they're both like overworked from rehearsal and Fred Astaire is giving her a nice shoulder massage and Paul, the choreographer, just goes up to them and he's like, no, no, get up, we need to rehearse some more. Like, that's kind of emblematic of the way that... It, yeah, they, they've interacted yeah, in the yeah, past. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree with that. Uh, we're, we're projecting a lot onto their relationship, but I think it's significant that... My favourite song in the movie is I Love Louisa because it's just everyone gets more and more into it mm. and the fact that, no, this is what it's about. It's so energetic and you see the characters smile for the first time in age and they're not yeah. talk, they're not singing about the show. For a bit of context, these scenes happen after they, after they premiere the stuffy theatrical version of the show that is written by Cordova. And directed it, by Cordova. And the is directed by Cordova. And it completely flops. It's a nice parallel to Singing in the Rain and the original Dueling Cavalier before it gets turned into the Dancing Cavalier. The plots of these films are very similar. They were made back to back by MGM. It's very much MGM in the 50s being like, what the people want is fun musicals. Exactly. And yeah. we will give them fun musicals about how what the people want is fun musicals. But, but where in Singing in the Rain you have the three of them, you know, brainstorming ways to fix uh, the musical and then singing Good Morning, here the characters just meet up and have a good time and sing Louisa and sing a few songs. So, what do we think of the musical numbers in this one? Well, I've already, I've already said Louisa is my favourite scene. Yeah, and I've already said Dancing in the Dark is my favourite. Oh, in terms of singing numbers, you know which one, I don't know, really stuck with me. For I, I don't know which reason, Louisiana Hayride. <laughs> it's such a happy... Is that, like, is that meant to be a... Oklahoma pastiche, like it what? Is. Yeah, I think it right. is. And I just think that I don't know. I'm just I don't know if I'm more in love with Nanette Fabre or Sid Charisse in this film. Nanette Fabre is amazing uh, in this she film. She's amazing. Like, I love her. like she's such a great face. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. that sounds so facile. And Louisiana, just... oh, Louisiana Hayride is her solo vehicle in the film. Yeah, so, but yeah. She, she's in. A... She gets to sing a lot. I For love like writers. the idea that she's like, I'm going to write myself a bunch of numbers and do them. <laughs> like She's cool. And because I, her husband is meant to be in the play originally, but we never see him. <laughs> yeah, but Jeffrey's in the play. Yeah, I love that. So is Jeffrey based on Laurence Olivier? Because he dresses Orson, like and him. And Orson Welles, I assume. That, I mean, the, the trope of like the actor-manager 
yeah overreacher figure is so like the, the first time the first time Jeffrey's introduced to us we see a poster of his adaptation of Oedipus Rex which reads a Jeffrey Cordova production with Jeffrey Cordova directed by Jeffrey Cordova starring Jeffrey Cordova <laughs> it's just yeah, his name like five times on the poster I don't know I I don't want to upset you but I didn't find like the numbers of the bandwagon to be like again not completely unlike singing in the rain like this is a dance musical this is not a singing musical mm-hmm. this is not a character singing songs about you know that move them on emotionally it's for the they, star, they do dances sometimes that move them on emotionally and like the dancing is amazing so like the song that stuck with me most is I'll go my way because I think, think that's a great song and I really enjoyed him singing it and it was kind of the only time that I felt like I was seeing like a character in a musical having a song like that's about their current thing rather than doing a kind of elaborate number I think that's entertainment does that as well though yeah but what I find so interesting about the numbers in the back half of the film is that the central conceit of the play that they're putting together, which we only see the musical stuff from, is that he's a children's book author by day and like pop fiction author by night. So you get these three numbers which are like very whimsical, fun numbers, which I think they're meant to represent as children's fiction. And then at the very end you have this like parody of a noir Lord, it's, it's just hysterical, I feel. <laughs> and it, is, it kind of reminds me of, of the, the number at the end of Singing in the Rain, the mm-hmm. Cherry's number, yeah. with the gangsters throwing yeah. uh, coins up and down. Here you have something similar with the dancing the gangsters. Char- I, yeah, is playing the same character. She moves in the same way. She's styled in the same way. Like, that's a, that's a you know... Sid Charisse cinematic universe, like that's the same person. <laughs> it's the CCCU. <laughs> I have a bit of a problem with musicals that have explicitly diegetic musical numbers while also having non-diegetic musical numbers. Trying to do naturalism in a musical, like you can't, if you if you have musical numbers, you have musical numbers. It, it's just challenging because you have a different relationship to it than you have in a stage musical, right? Like in a stage musical, it doesn't matter if the character is doing a like, this is a in-universe musical number or if they're just doing a musical number because they're always on stage. It's when the stage is a setting rather than a venue for the audience to watch something. Yeah. In the same way that movies and movies can be very difficult to get right. Mm. And I think that the bandwagon, I think, struggles with that at times. And and I really, really like this film, but I, it's a small criticism I have of That's it. also my criticism, kind of. Like, this film, as satirical and funny as it is about the production of theatre plays and all that happens behind the scenes, it doesn't do nearly something as interesting with the craft of putting together a piece of entertainment as much as Singing in the Rain does, with all of its satire about microphones and record and sound recording. And We don't see any songs from the failed version of the musical. We see them we rehearsing the dance number them. with yeah. all of the flashes, yeah. and then Jeffrey's like, I think it's a bit too much, isn't it? <laughs> it really does feel like the, the film runs through a lot of plot points because it wants to get to that long string of numbers at the end. It, and it, it, yeah. it covers a lot of ground. The other thing that kind of confuses me is... So this is a movie set in the time that the movie comes out. They name drop Marlon Brando. But the musical they put on, the actual bandwagon thing they put on, I mean, first of all, you should never make a musical version of Faust. Everyone's done it. It's not an original idea. And, like, the, and the reason why he picks up on that is that when they pitch him the plot of the, of the play, they're like, oh yeah, he's writing children's books, but also Pope fiction, almost like he's being compelled by the devil to do so. Like He already wanted to do a Faust play. Yeah, yeah. And then he picks up on that once, like, Very common sentence. phrase. Yeah. <laughs> but, the way that you kind of 
explain it made it make more sense because when I was watching it, it felt a lot like more of a sketch review, which is much more of a 1930s vaudeville thing than it is like a 1950s Broadway musical. But something that really like I couldn't buy into uh, was the noir number at the end. That didn't happen on a stage. Yeah, that was it's... made for the camera. Yeah. Clearly. I mean, as I mentioned, Vincent Minnelli, one of my favorite musical directors, he puts so much life into this scene. Like just, just he's, he's so good behind the camera. But I really don't buy that this number is meant to take place on a stage. It's just not. <laughs> Especially in the 1950s. Yeah. And it, like, the, I mean, it's made very explicit. Like the camera is used in a way that makes it very clear that this is a piece that's being cut together. Yeah, there's different angles that do like a 180. And he's got it. these like spinny transitions and yeah. it's just... I mean, the transition, I can believe that they are, you know, part of the editing artifice, but they didn't happen on stage. But just a lot of the angles and a lot of the just setting changes that happen in the blink of a second, it's like, it's... Yeah. So the bit, the bit with the triplets... <laughs> who want to shoot each other. The angry, fighty babies. So that's part of his kids' fiction. Is that when the devil is making him write weird, like, dark kids' fiction? No, you see... say that, and I'm like, I... I... I trust you, but I didn't get that from the film. Fred Astaire is also characters in those whimsical numbers that take place in his stories, and that's never remarked on. Yeah, like, they're, it's just a bunch of whimsical numbers that happen, and they're like, this is a big hit. And you're like, I, is it, like, what? But this is, I don't know, this part of the charm of it, of this play within the play, much yeah. like the Dancing Cavalier, the plot doesn't matter, it's just an excuse to get these numbers yeah, out there. absolutely. It, it really is, just like the Dancing Cavalier. Yeah, it, it's it's wild. This movie is a good I time. love it's, it. It's, <laughs> it's very charming, and it is lovely to have... <laughs> It's lovely that Cerise is allowed to speak and sing and like and has do a so very well. Yeah, she doesn't do her own singing, but she mouths very well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she does her own lip singing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, she's God. She's such a phenomenal dancer. Like it's such a joy to watch her dance, and it's such a credit to anybody that in a dance partnership with Fred Astaire, I I don't watch Fred Astaire. Like he's he's pretty much invisible. I do, I do have to say, although I did find Dancing in the Dark incredibly sexy, I wasn't focusing much on Fred Astaire at all yeah. during that part, which might have helped. But it's still it's it's a romantic. Oh, it's so it romantic. It's, very romantic. it's lovely. And yeah. it's so well, like, directed and... And it is, it's, I think it's some of the best storytelling in the whole of the film because you really do believe, you're like, this is what's drawing them together. This is their intimacy. This is them developing an actual relationship. They're like, well, can we dance together? Okay, we're going to go find out. And they can, and they really do. And it's the bit of plot. It's the plot yeah, yeah. And, and in the original play, and also a previous film adaptation from 1949 titled Dancing in the Dark, that number has lyrics. They took the lyrics out from this version. They don't need Once, them, yeah. yeah. I think that cinematically, definitely, it is so engaging just to watch the movement of the bodies. And you're getting so much from their performances and they're communicating so much with their movement. And I don't know if any of the dancing and singing in the rain does that as well. Because singing in the rain... Moses supposes. It's just best friends. It's just best friends that live just together. Best friends having a lovely time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... The dancing, the bodies speaking to each other dancing is the Gene Kelly, Sid Charisse duet, which mm -hmm. is the very, very, very sexy duet. Whereas, like... The only time that the supposed romantic leads of Singing in the Rain dance together is with Cosmo. And it's like a lovely tap dance. 
about being, again, really good at tap dancing. Can't wait for them yeah. to get married and him being like, can Cosmo be on the altar with us? <laughs> yeah, like, can Cosmo is a part of this relationship. Can this hand yeah. Cosmo lives here now. Abs- oh, Cosmo definitely lives with them. It's never specified that Cosmo doesn't already live with Don. <laughs> on that note, can we talk about the 30s? Yeah. Yeah. Gold diggers of 1990. No, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, now, game face. Gold diggers of 1933. Directed by Mervyn Leroy and choreographed by Busley Berkeley, folks. Things get tough for Carol and her showgirl pals, Trixie and Polly, when the Great Depression kicks in and all Broadway shows close down. Wealthy songwriter Brad saves the day by funding a new depression-themed musical for the girls to star in. But when his stuffy high-society brother finds out and threatens to disown Brad, Carol and her gold-digging friends scheme to keep the show going, hooking a couple of millionaires along the way in this toe-tapper of a musical. I really enjoyed the old-timey newscaster approach you took to that that blurbing. You've got to do it. Yeah, you've got to commit. I love it. Wait, for for the rest of the section? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well... Well, Katie and Francesca, what did you think of the film? Uh, I loved this film with my whole heart. Uh, me Thank too. Thank you for introducing me to this film. It was so such good. a delight. <laughs> so, yeah, Gold Diggers of 33 is a pre-code musical from the 1930s starring Warren William, John Blondell, Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell, as well as Aileen McMahon and Ginger Rogers. I'm, I'm Who always... is barely in it. It's I was a surprised real, almost how cameo little, from Ginger Rogers. I was surprised at how little she was in it, but she she does sing the most famous song yeah. from the movie. Yeah. But narratively, she's very sidelined compared to the others. But she does, you know, have significant stuff in the in in the musical numbers. Mm. Um, I think that. She does. She, I think she has some really great scenes in the uh, dialogue, specifically the bit where she comes in in like this skin tight dress and sunglasses, like she's in disguise. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why are you wearing glasses? I'm hiding from my landlady <laughs> on account of I owe her rent. <laughs> uh, it's just like, are there so many l- great lines in this movie oh, as yeah. well? So quotable. I mentioned to Charlie earlier. I want to steal the uh, the millionaire character's pickup line, where it just goes up to a woman and it's like. You look like a woman of breeding. Who are your people? <laughs> <laughs> I I worried again when I was watching that that scene that he was going to fall in love with Polly because she's more you know agreeable. But no, he likes the in, in his words, not mine. Yeah. the more vulgar, common, um, more stereotypical showgirl. Love that scene where they're like they've both pretty much acknowledged the fact that they fancy each other and he's like, every time you say cheap and vulgar, I'm going to kiss you. And she's just like, cheap and vulgar, cheap and vulgar, cheap and vulgar. It's <laughs> like, that is actually one of the most realistic bits of the whole of the film. I'm just saying that is absolutely how people who really fancy each other talk to each other. Like, it's just like, that's why they have so, there's such good chemistry together. Despite the fact they're on paper, chemistry. they shouldn't. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing. He's not a 
particularly likable character. No. And but, he's very rude to them, but... Oh, he sucks. Like, it's just... Yeah, it's that thing of she has such a good time. You know, She's like, well, he came into my house and was incredibly rude about me and my friends, so I have no qualms at all about be, like taking him for a ride. But then when he actually tries to give her loads of money and kind of in- implies that she's buyable and she's like, no, fuck you, I'm not buyable. And like the way that they kind of come to understand each other as equals, like it's just really... It's fascinating that she has no problem taking his money when it's on her terms. Mm. When it's getting him to buy her stuff that she wants. And it's also a question of scale, right? Like, that is very different from somebody straight up offering you $10,000, which is, I'm assuming, like, we're in the the hundreds of thousands easily. It's like like half a million. Like, there's a crazy amount of money. And it's, again, it's that, it's what's the nature of this transaction. Because he could easily not pay for the hat, right? Like, he doesn't have to pay for lunch, doesn't have to pay for the hat. It's very easy for him to opt out of those things but she's playing on the fact that he is so stuffy and he has such ideas about, you know, the way people should behave and it's still within his control to opt out. It's not final. There's something very final about I've given you £10,000 to yeah. go away. And um, 10K is just under the budget of the musical that they're putting yeah. together, which is 15K. Yeah, yeah. so that's it's, it's, amazing it's, amounts of money. It's, I really love this movie. I also think that she's playing on his insecurities by making him pay for all this stuff because to not do that sort of it may it undermines his position as someone who can improve their lives by them getting out of his mm. I, I love how quickly they buy hats oh it's instant it's like it's like they've had this conversation loads of times like what would we do if just some millionaires came in like oh we get some hats sent over and see if <laughs> they pay they for come them. so like, quickly it's, it's just phenomenal and it's the way that like the delivery boys come in and just everyone is like well somehow we just all know exactly what's happening here and like we all know the parts we have to play in it and we're just like yeah and what i love the most about that scene is that both the delivery boys have such distinct characters yes like even the throwaway characters in this film are so they're amazing when she's like keep the change by a yacht and he's like i get really seasick (laughs) such a good line and she's talking about five dollars <laughs> oh it's so good like it's just and the pace of it all it's so rapid fire and like they're so quick and we get to see like the wit of all of these women and the fact that we get to see it way before they start doing their swindling i feel like so many lesser films the character only starts to become kind of quick talking and quippy when the plot requires it and you don't see it beforehand so i was wondering whether or not the film is painting them as gold diggers in the in the negative sense, in the way that the brother views them as. Because obviously, it paints him in the wrong. I read it as they don't really start swindling until he tells them they're swindlers. Mm. Oh, totally. Like, well, not... they steal milk from their neighbours. That's true, but Wittily. they literally... <laughs> they have no money. <laughs> no, exactly. And I think the film paints that as further... I think everything they do is painted as ingenuity. Yeah. I don't think the film is ever judging them. But they need, you know, milk to <laughs> yeah, exactly. not, get, not exactly. get rickets. They don't need the hats. They and don't they, need they the do, hats. They look great in but the But they hats. do need the hats because they talk about how they need to be presented in a certain way in order to get jobs. That's true, but so they've they got this job. But they've need... got this job. Yeah, but they like, kind of need the also, hats. Did they move flats at some point? Because because the flat suddenly got much bigger. <laughs> well, it's hard to tell in black and white. Yeah. And, and they never mention it, so I had to like go over that bit. Also, like they're not they have separate rooms now, <laughs> so it's like a lot of time has passed since the show took off. 
But also, uh, yeah, I love it. And the way they play off each other. I think one of my notes, I just went, female friendship, like exclamation mark. Like, it's just so pleasing that there's no sense of rivalry. There is oh. no yes, sense is. in which except they for are. Except for Ginger Rogers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But like the fact that they're all working, they're all trying to work in the same show. Like they are not throwing each other under the bus. Yeah. They are not like, oh, why does she get to marry the guy who's turned out to be the son of a millionaire and I'm stuck with it? Like there is no cutthroat attitude for each other. They are able to be cutthroat. They are savvy. They are kind of willing to be duplicitous. They're not, they're not sweet But they don't do it to each other. Like, you know, so there's there's something very satisfying about the fact. There's there are just these wonderful scenes where they are, when they are ganging up on the millionaires and while they're doing that, they're just looking at each other and winking and all of a sudden the other woman picks up on the, yeah. on the gig. Like, they and, really yeah. know each other. They're really You get the sense they've gone through a lot together before the movie starts and I really like that. I also appreciate, going to what you said about female friendship, that the thrust of the movie the con that they're pulling is to help one of them yeah without them having been asked they're like no fuck this guy yeah he's trying to stop our best friend from being happy and, and yeah like brad is also their friend now and he is also bankrolled their show yeah but it kicks into action because he basically says that their friend isn't worthy of his brother yeah and that pisses them off as it should yeah although we just before we Talk about maybe some of the more expressionist political parts of this movie. Can we talk about Trixie and Fanny? <laughs> because I love them. <laughs> I love them so much. I love that he's like, you got to be careful around uh, these uh, musical theatre people because, you know, they'll try to snare you and you need to be very on your guard immediately. <laughs> Instantly. No, but as he says that, he goes on a five-minute monologue about this woman who supposedly swindled him a few years back and he's called just him clearly fu- in love with him. Called him Fluffy. <laughs> fluffy. No, no, Fuffy. Not even Fluffy. Oh. Fuffy. And I love that there is no animosity in that moment. Like he's trying to paint her as a gold digger and a, and a swindler, but he's just clearly so still in he love with her. He just loves her. her. Yeah. Like, that's what he has to give. He's like, I'm nice, but also I have lots of money, so I can buy people dogs and hats. And but what, I, what is his real name, his full name? It's ridiculous. It's, it's Fanuel H. Peabody, <laughs> yes. which is the name of someone who could only be a lawyer in that period. <laughs> which is actually well, something I love about this film is that, like the previous two, there is the high art, low art, art contrast but in this case the low art is the theater and the high art is him going up and being like uh so you're not playing classical music are you i I think that's really interesting that it is not just someone who is really passionate about music but is passionate about music in an unpretentious way is he well because he's not like i said he's not doing opera he's like i really love these songs I, i really love songs that appeal to a lot of people in a more in a vaudeville space rather than you know just rich people in an opera house oh brad's yeah, Brad, sorry. Oh, no, right. I'm talking about We're the older brother. No, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, ta- sorry, I moved to talking about Brad. Because we talked about a lot of time passing once the play in the film opens. Are him and Polly together at the beginning of the movie? Yes. So she's met him two weeks ago and they've had an instant falling in love and he, like, plays the piano for her through the window and, like, he's calling her honey from the beginning. Like, they are together. Okay, so it's two, but it's two weeks and they've not yeah. been together for a while because if they'd been together for a while, it's, it's really weeks. shitty of him to let them starve when he has all this money. Yeah, and also to, like, not have told her, which is it is unethical to conceal the extent of your family's wealth from your partner because you are just flat-out lying about who you are. I kind of justified it in this film because he's, he's also starving himself and he's clearly... 
is cut off from his family and it's implied that if he were to take money from them they might then find him but then he does take money from them and they still don't but, find him until he makes a public appearance so here's the difference even if that is the case he will always have that safety net yeah uh, unless he marries polly he will lose that safety net and he's willing to do that <laughs> but there's a difference between a rich person cutting themselves off and not relying on their rich family knowing that if it was a life or death situation, yeah. they, they could go back fed. to that family. Yeah. He wasn't ousted by the family, he wasn't exiled by them, He's, yeah. he left them, so... Yeah. yeah. But no, it's, it's very much like they've been together for two weeks. And, okay. And all her friends are like... What's the deal? This is ridiculous, like, you're not in love, like, you don't know him. Also, like, don't fall in love with a penniless songwriter. Yeah, just because a, like, sm- a smiling boy plays the piano nicely doesn't they, mean that you should marry him. They are really cute together. They are cute because they're both kind of Pollyannas, but like... Yeah, I agree, which is insane because... <laughs> but um, they are sweet. Dick Powell was a very troubled person in real life. He was in a lot of movies paired up with Ruby Keeler, who plays Polly. In real life, he married Joan Blondell, who plays Carol oh. in this movie. And people were so angry. It's mm. so... It, it's the same shit. It's very singing in the rain. Yeah. Let's talk quickly. We've not actually talked much about the musical numbers because we've just gushed about the comedy. So what is it with this film, some babies? Yeah, okay. What I want to <laughs> so, yeah, we have to, we got to talk about that small okay. child. So while you, before I tell you what that was, could you just explain what you're freaking out about? Okay, so there's, there are two enormous set piece musical numbers. There are lots of musical numbers, but there are the two kind of Next level one. Petting in the Park and, and Forgotten, Forgotten Man. Man. Yeah. Okay, so we'll talk about both so of those. So Petting in the Park comes pretty early on and it's the song that lovely Brad and his on his piano has written. And it's this enormous, enormous number about petting in the park. So clearly cruising, but in universe about, you know, heterosexual couples feeling each other up in the park. In, in all seasons, in snow, in shine, in rain. And uh, the kind of, there are many strange things about this number, but uh, the pertinent strange thing here is that after the rain, all of the ladies go into a house to take off their clothes because their clothes have got wet and uh, a screen is tastefully lowered so that they're stripping in silhouette rather than actually exposing themselves to the audience. And then a little baby, a little small child in what we assume is probably head to toe yellow rain clothes has been wandering around winking naughtily at the the male lead for the whole number and sort of winks naughtily at the camera and like pulls a thing to reveal all of the ladies. Before that he shows up in a literal baby's outfit in a big baby stroller and starts shooting spitballs at the police and the police start chasing him on roller skates. And yeah this, the baby's on roller skates. And there's this scene with a little bit like it's, it looks like a child of five or six but they're dressed as a little baby in that moment so you see a small baby roller skating away from the police chasing him and then he goes and, and does that creepy and then yeah makes this reveal and it's a kind of oh we're gonna reveal the ladies in their states of undress but what they're actually wearing are this kind of chastity belt leotards made of aluminium and so the men in their raincoats are like oh i'm gonna get my hands on this girl and then they're like tapping on the metal like oh no i can't get in and the I baby can't get in. gives Dick Powell, a can opener. <laughs> and then he sort of methodically, tur- you know, like a teen movie where you can't unhook the bra. He's like, right, I've got to get a look at this thing. Turns Polly round and like slowly can opens the back of her. And the breastplate. Like, aluminium sense. breastplate. And then we cut away to like... I, I think it goes over into an into another song. It's but so, so surreal. I love it. It's I love it so much. Astonishing. But the... <sighs> 
baby is this? Where okay. is your parent? So, Billy Belty... Is this going to be a horrible story? No. no okay. ...was an American actor and activist. In adult life, he stood three feet, nine inches tall due to cartilage, hair, hyperplasia, dwarfism, and because of his short stature, he was often cast in movies opposite taller performers for comic effects. So it was a nine-year-old short person. Okay. So he's still, he is an actual child in the film. He is a child, okay. but okay. he's not a, as young as he appears. As he looks, yeah. And it, it's someone... It's a child with dwarfism who is playing a baby. <laughs> so the final song of the film was meant to go in the part of the film that Penning in the Park is, and Penning in the Park was meant to close the film. I think it's much more effective the way they do it, but if you look, they're all wearing their costumes for Penning in the Park just before they go into The Forgotten Man. So The Forgotten Man is, it's kind of similarly to the gangster number in The Bandwagon. It's a film, it it doesn't really make sense diegetically. It's very much a very expressionist, very cinematic thing that you don't believe is necessarily a part of the play in the same way. I guess I don't I don't necessarily understand its role in the piece that they're supposed to be presenting, but I do think it's very theatrical in a way that the gangster the girl hunt bit in Bandwagon is clearly for the screen. Sure, I, I, but I'm talking specifically about the scale of it and that it's so made to be viewed from an aerial shot from higher up. It's not something that I believe is necessarily it exists on the stage in the film in the same way that it appears on screen. I think it is not meant to be taken as literally what the actors are playing. I think it's making a larger point. It starts following Carol playing a sex worker who is lamenting the fact that she used to have a husband to look after her, but she lost that because he was sent off to fight in World War One and then came back and wasn't um, supported by the government after came back either with trauma and then because of the depression. And, and the theme of the song is the forgotten man, which is a common saying at that time of men, particularly those who had gone to fight in World War One and had come back and there wasn't the support necessary, either financial or emotional, that they could return to civilian life and not struggle. And I think what the song does, it becomes much more stylized. You almost have a supercut of going off to war and then the reality of the horrors of war and then coming back to March on Washington, which is a thing that uh, happened. The number is very theatrical in the way that it's expressing it and the movie ends on this number. What do you guys think of that number? I think it's, I mean, it's a real surprise. Like you're not expecting it at all. But it does feel like, you know, the fact that they kind of, they say, and it's it's played very lightly throughout, but they say that it's going to be a piece about the depression. And then it's kind of like, they don't really interrogate what that means. And obviously they all end up married to really rich men. But then actually they have said that they're going to make this piece about the depression. So you finally see what it is that they've put together. And it's it's kind of harrowing. Like it's really, it feels like it's really trying to counterbalance this lightness of this film that is about a really, really dark time with this kind of horror that it's actually for everybody else, you know, not these men happen to be millionaires and now these women are going to be rich as well. And they're all, you know, delightful people in their own various ways. But this is, this is a fairy tale that we've been watching. And it's also a nice, Contrast because the two numbers sandwiching the film. The first number. Uh, we're in the money. I was yeah. yeah I was yeah, gonna say yeah. I think it's literally that 
song says there's no depression anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because we're in the money. And then immediately the show gets shut down and the costumes are literally stripped from their backs. Yeah. Which is really, really, like, comically framed. But just thinking that is a really horrific thing to do. You don't, like, give them time to change or anything. You're just grabbing their clothes off them. Yeah, I... I I, I love this. I'd encourage uh, people people to watch it. Yeah, I think I yeah I really really loved this. You know there are um, sequels to it. I saw that when I was trying to find it. I saw the um, the trailer. This very oh, it's such an odd creation. A trailer for Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty five, where they have the actresses from that film saying, in a very kind of strange forced way, like this. Studio made this wonderful film, Gold Diggers of 1933. Well, now they've made an even better film. And it's not. <laughs> it's called Gold Diggers of 1935. You're like, that, what is, it's like Fast and Furious 7. Like, <laughs> you can't just call a film the same thing and keep making it over and but, over again. But it's not, it's not a sequel. That, that's kind of, it's not it's like, like a traditional sequel. It's not the same characters. It's some of the same actors. But also, 33 isn't the first one. <laughs> what? So it's, there's a play, The Gold Diggers. Okay. Which gets adapted into Gold Diggers of 1929, which is now lost. But crucially, between 33 and 35, 1934, the production code comes out. So th- that stops it from being a pre-code movie. So yeah. we're, we're all just laughing at the fact that you specified that 1934 <laughs> happened between 1933 and 1935. Yeah, we were about to say, crucially, between 1933 and 1935, 34. <laughs> 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 oh my god! Appreciation for China's grasp of chronological time. (laughs) Time is linear. I get it. I figured it out. Uh, But I was making a point. Other other, other than I was in 1934, the production production code happened. Fuck you guys. I hate you. Are we talking about the Hayes Code? Yeah, the Hayes Code. Yeah. Should we have a moment and just explain for anyone who doesn't know what the Hayes Code is? The Hayes Code was part of a moral panic that Hollywood was corrupting the youth and it was a very strict set of guidelines as to what films could and couldn't show and if you look at them now some of them are crazy uh, some of them kind of make sense in terms of modern modern censorship ratings but generally they made films much more sexually conservative much more politically conservative definitely more racially conservative mm-hmm. it's I think Simultaneously, one of the worst things to ever happen to filmmaking, but at the same time, the ways that filmmakers got around it and tried to subvert it are fascinating yeah. and made some really good films. So, yeah, that's what The Hayes Code is. Uh, it fucking sucked. Uh, made by a bunch of people who hated movies. And also most people that were not straight white men. Thank God that we don't have people like that anymore. Yeah, yeah it's, all, no. it's all fixed. Um, <laughs> and I think The Hayes Code... So, going to the difference between, you know, 33 and 35, after the Hayes Code, it's very difficult to even acknowledge that there is a depression, because it's almost like saying that there's something wrong with the country. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than the fact that there's, you know, a global depression going on. Uh, how much longer do you want to dedicate to this section? Uh, we, no, no, I don't <laughs> worry. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, let's uh, move on. Can we just take a break? I need to go to the toilet. Oh, for sure. Without love, life has no purpose. <laughs> They could see me now, that little gang of mine. I'm eating fancy chow and drinking fancy wine. They never-
It's me, Charity. So, can you talk about Sweet Charity? Yes. Yes, we can. Yes, please. So, Sweet Charity is the 1969 film adaptation of the 1966 Broadway musical, both directed by Bob Fosse. So it's a Cy Coleman and Dorothy Fields score, and the Broadway version was a vehicle for Gwen Verdon, part of the Fosse-Verdon partnership. And because of Hollywood reasons, it's played by Shirley MacLaine in the film. And the eponymous sweet charity, Charity Hope Valentine, is a sad but extremely hopeful taxi dancer in New York in the 60s. So a taxi dancer is a dancer for hire. There's a, the Fandango Ballroom, and it's a kind of not quite prostitution or a kind of front quasi-prostitution so, space. What I think it is, it's you can't solicit prostitutes. What you can do is dance with them and then it can go somewhere from there. You're paying for the dance. You're not. You're not seeking out a sex worker, so I think it's a legal loophole. Yeah, but notionally, you rent a dancer. Essentially, you rent a dance partner. That's the premise. And Charity has a string of unsuccessful relationships, and uh, we meet her in a park with a man who is clearly a shit and she sings about how much she loves him and then he pushes her in the river and steals her handbag. With all the money she's taken out so they can buy a place together. Yeah, and she has a series of kind of shenanigans and disappointments throughout the course of the film and it's deeply, deeply strange. It's Bob Fosse's first film and he is very, very oh, look at my new toys, I can do effects and strange edits fun. and yeah. camera moments. There's a lot throughout, there's a lot of freeze framing, there's a lot of, and now we're going to stop and just pause. I watched this film with my boyfriend and he was like, so is somebody stalking her? Is that the plot? Because someone keeps taking pictures of her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a wonderful read. No, but like crucially, like I found that early scene in the park remarkably funny but then the but then the more it goes on the less i laughed because first of all you empathize with her a lot but second of all she she doesn't deserve any of it and like very importantly the musical version and this film by an extension is an adaptation of federico fellini's knights of cabiria which is my personal favorite fellini film and there's such a wonderful tribute to it it's like both versions are amazing i think i mean i think it's it's very strange i mean it's got strange it's a strange musical in the first place so that's part of the strangeness but there's also there is this sense of him being like what does it look like for Bob Fosse to make a film so he's kind of kind of doing too much or doing you know he's he's refining techniques that he will become more accomplished in so I don't know but I think there's firstly it's got two of the best musical theatre songs of all time in my opinion Big Spender Big Spender and no, I would actually say um, there's got to be something better than this. Oh, that's my yeah. that's my least favorite <gasps> in the musical. That's my least favorite in the in the. Film. Oh my! Oh what? I think it's the. All right, here's the thing. I think it's the only song in the musical that that could exist in another musical. Everything else is so distinct to the world of Sweet Charity. I Rhythm think... of Life. Rhythm of Life is not specific to the world at all. Yes, it is. It lifts I think it... right out. I think it is. I, I think it is. There's something so to me off the wall and kooky about it. I, I, I don't know, it felt kind of like a generic desire song to me. Oh my God, I, I, wow. Like, yeah, absolutely. If you had another musical about women in a rubbish situation, like, spoiler alert, there's a lot of 
women who've been in rubbish situations. Like it could it could be a different set of women. By the way, I don't but, dislike the song. It's just my least favorite out of a bunch of bangers. I've had to pick. I probably have to go with if my friends could see me now. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love that song. That also would. It's go also above the one time in the film where she is happy. So she she goes into this big movie star's mansion. Oh, but what she do, what does she do before that, Francesco? She goes to an insane club. Yes, we we have to let's get we'll get there. We'll, let's stay on on her yeah. in Vittorio's yeah. apartment. In Vittorio, yeah, like it's played by Ricardo Montalban, yeah. <laughs> who is yeah. I think really lovely in this movie. <laughs> he's not a, in this in this scene. There is a bit of a weird undercurrent because she's singing in his room and he's like outside of the room picking up memorabilia for her and just poking his nose in from time to time and that interrupts her song and it's like it's almost like she's she's being uh, surveilled during this moment of just pure soliloquy and just pure unadulterated happiness but regardless of that I, I love the number and it's such a good dance number as well sorry just in that scene I like that they're not gonna fuck yeah. Even before like his ex turns up. Yeah. I like that they've just kind of got a mates dynamic from yeah. the beginning. And I, I'm sure it's probably different in the Fellini version. <laughs> so the one thing I'll say about Kabiria, first of all, go watch it. Amazing film. Second of all, there is an equivalent to the Hollywood actor. There is an equivalent to Oscar, who we'll talk about later. In the Fellini version, they're much more, especially Oscar is much more malicious. So there's that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a different sort of story. It, it's 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 not dealing with like counterculture in the uh, same yeah, way. Yeah, and it's also it's set in Rome, but it's it's half between the city of Rome and the rural periphery of Rome. Right. Whereas Sweet Child is very distinctly New York. It's so New York. You talk about Fosse playing with his new toys. I think the biggest toy he plays in the in this film is location. In a way that you know you can't on a Broadway stage. That he makes so much use of it being in New York. It's the not park like it's especially. not like every New York street looks like a real New York street in such an exciting way, and I I just I feel kind of happy for Fosse. Yeah. <laughs> that he's like, oh wow, I can actually rather than just have people singing about the location, they can just be engaging with this environment, and the environment feels very realized without being limited by realism. That everything is a bit off. Yeah, it is this upside down world, but it's yeah. it's topsy turvy. It's yeah, it's a topsy turvy New York rather than just a, ge- a generic soundstage topsy turvy. But also, I mean Shirley MacLaine I love wearing Shirley MacLaine. her heart on her sleeve. She is so strange. Like Charity <laughs> is such a strange human being, but she's so open and she's so she has this balance of like totally vulnerable and totally not embittered, but just like she she has already seen it all. You know, none of this is new to her. She's choosing to let herself be vulnerable and to let it seem like a surprise each time. But she's also she's got such such like lift experience. I, I do think that there is just sort of a if I use this word, I don't mean it in the way it's been used now of like but pixie-ish. Like not manic pixie dream girl, but there's something like very spiky and elemental about McLean's performance here. Mm. It's such a beautiful performance and I don't see the film working without her or an actor doing work as well as she's doing because otherwise the whole movie falls apart. I think there's something really interesting about vulnerability in musical theatre because if you are in the same room as somebody who's doing that dancing and that singing the quality of intimacy is very different so I can and I think this is part of why so many Tom Hoopers are so bad at directing musicals is because they don't they don't understand what it is that you that you need to change for the screen. They think people will be freaked out that they're singing and dancing, but it's not that. It's just the the intimate relationship you have with the performer is different. So you have to find a way to do cinematic vulnerability. Um, 
Let's talk about Oscar, but first, can we just talk about the rhythm of life quickly? Okay. Uh, because I think Oscar's going to stretch out to talking about the latter half of the film. And without spoiling too much, the rhythm of life is a um, offbeat church that she goes to. Sweet Charity comes out at a period of time in the late 60s before, I think for a lot of people, especially filmmakers, the Manson family murders are a turning point where the counterculture turns dark. But it's also after a time where counterculture has become extremely vibrant and diverse and exciting. So there are films that exist in this really sweet spot, bringing in new Hollywood, that have, I would say, a lot of the sincerity, if not optimism, of classic Hollywood, but the techniques and perspectives of a younger generation. And I think Sweet Charity, speaking to the theme of the podcast, of what deserves greater recognition, I think Sweet Charity definitely deserves to be recognised as a film that ushers in the new wave of Hollywood films alongside Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy and Bonnie and Clyde and specifically doing so for the musical genre. So again we talk a lot about realism when it comes to musicals but I think like this is this is in some ways a really bleak musical because you have this relentlessly optimistic heroine who just wants to be loved and just keeps going out with these horrible horrible men and she has a brief respite where she is not really hit on and just sort of hangs out with a movie star for an evening and then she gets shut in a cupboard while he has sex with his girlfriend and then she goes home with a hat and a signed picture and it's like that was the best night of my life um which is is very sad it's very wholesome and then she meets so in the musical in the stage musical it's not quite as telegraphed but in the film she's like okay i want a new life i'm gonna go try to get a new job and is basically told by this kind of employment consultant, whatever he is, that she has no skills and is not fit for anything. Well, he thinks she's pulling a prank on him when yeah. she applies for the job. It's, it's so, so brutal insulting. that yeah. she's like, he's like, oh, <laughs> I thought you were Who serious you for a moment, yeah, yeah. but you're like, yeah. So it's, it's she has this kind of brutal, demoralizing experience of like, you don't have any skills. It's like laughable how unskilled you are. And then she gets into a lift in this corporate building with this man. And then the lift breaks down and they get stuck. And he's really claustrophobic, so she has to calm him down. One of my absolute favourite lines in the entire film, where she's trying to be like, you know, what's your name, whatever, like calm him down questions. And she's like, where do you live? And he goes, in an elevator! (laughs) I I was so relatable. I've never related to Oscar in any other moment except for that. And I was like, yeah, claustrophobia is really stressful. Yeah, as as someone... (laughs) I have like profound frustration. Yeah, me too. You do as well. like, um, so Oscar, it's a classic meet cute. In the in the stage musical, there's a whole number she sings called "I'm the Bravest Individual," which I do think it's sad lo- they cut from the song. film. It's a lovely song, but anyway, they cut it. They keep the essence of the moment, and it's the meet cute for them. So she kind of helps Oscar through his time of great need, and then to summarize, he asks her to kind of go out with him to this church. hippie. She's like, "Do you want?" He's like, "Do you want to come to church?" And she's kind of like. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then they go to this like garage where there's a kind of hippie cult. The leader is played by Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> and it is, I mean, it's sublime. It is a great song. It's Sammy not Davis my Jr. Song, is amazing in this he film. He is by the way. incredible. Um, so they go to this church service and they start kind of going out. And she's really, you know, as we know she does, she's getting attached, she's getting excited. But crucially, he does not know what she does for a living because she hasn't met him in the Fandango ballroom. And we should talk about Big Spender just to circle back. But um, (laughs) he doesn't know what she does for a living. He 
keeps talking to her about how she's clearly a secretary in a bank and she's clearly kind of virginal and he has this idea of her because she is this like sweet pure hearted person he's conflating that with her moral worth based on her sexual history because he's an arsehole and also because it's the 60s and he (laughs) never happens now um (laughs) he has this built up idea of her and then he comes to know what she really does for a living and they still get engaged and they have this lovely send off from the ballroom where they have this lovely again like quite silly but i think really charming song where her kind of cantankerous boss at the ballroom says does this whole bit about i love to cry at weddings i love that song so much and like her friends get really emotional and like it's this it's lovely it's like she's part of this community they sincerely wish her well it's gorgeous and then he because he's a stupid little man gets really freaked out by seeing where she works and is like I can't deal with it I can't even I want to I love you but I can't cope with knowing your history it's important in the film he uh, as soon as he finds out what he does for a living he's actually very eager to meet her halfway and Part of the reason why he gets overwhelmed during that scene is not really... There is part of it being the workspace, but also part of it, him just... He can't stop thinking about the men she had she, she slept with before him. Yeah. And there's this zoom in of the fact that she has a tattoo of her ex. It's a heart yeah. on her shoulder that says Charlie, yeah. which is the exact same tattoo that I have. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, he zooms in on this... The camera does a zoom in on this tattoo of Charlie. And he's just... He's overwhelmed by the fact he's obsessed with this idea that she's like not pure and he's just not going to be able to cope with the fact that she's had sex with other men before him. So he kind of kind of implied that he basically thinks he might turn out to be a, an abuser or like some level of really horrendous husband. He's like, I'm basically, I'm going to be horrible to you. He's like, I'm saving you from me by breaking your heart. And like, do you know what really bothers me? is that she gets really excited. She's wearing a little coat and you can see the bit of white at the top of her dress and you think she's wearing a little white wedding dress. And then she opens her coat and she's so thrilled that she's got this like blue and white flowery dress on and she she's looks amazing. adorable. Yeah. She's got a flower and in her head. She's got a flower in her head. She looks so cute. She looks lovely. And she's so excited about it and she shows him the dress and he's so disparaging about the outfit that she's chosen for their wedding. And you're just like, well, no, don't marry him because he is an asshole. But it's just so brutal the way, it's that as much as the obvious cruelty of his actual rejection. It's just that little, that crushing small rejection where she's really excited about her lovely dress and he's dismissive of it. And you're just like, oh, oh, hate that guy. I've noticed two significant Zorro lines between this story in Sweet Charity and two of the films we're discussing today. First of all, compared to Singing in the Rain, there's a more realistic version of what will happen if a big, rich guy picked up a woman off the street and filled her head with, with drinks yeah. of marriage. Uh, I mean, there is an actual plot like with a Hollywood actor. But uh, secondly, Gold Diggers, how does it compare to that? Because in Gold Diggers, they have much more agency than Charity does. But that also sees, you know, starving showbiz women being picked up by very wealthy men. But it's a completely different framing. The relationship between... Oscar and Charity versus the relationship between Carol and Lawrence. I think there is a lot more nuance in The Sweet Charity, just because it's more of the focal point of the second half of the film. I think that it's still dealing with the same problems of men viewing women who are sexually active or have any agency at all as low-class or unloved. I think the difference is that this is much more of an overtly sexual dismissal. 
Yeah. As he's dismissing her based on her sexual history rather than because of her social background. I do think there's something potentially in the the difference between the world of the 30s and the world of the late 60s in terms of the difference between you have this kind of strange setup where you have the depression, you have the interwar years, you have in some ways kind of unparalleled freedom and power for women. And then you have the 60s, which is such, there's such a backlash to all of that. There's say, such a move, a drive, particularly in the 50s, to revert to an imaginary past with like extra repressive norms for women. There's a real cultural backlash against any sense of agency or sexual liberation. And there's a real like hark back to the Victorian angel and the house ideal. So in some senses, it makes sense that the 30s film, the women aren't really punished for any perceived sexual agency. And it is more about class, but that's treated quite lightly versus this like late 60s thing where this my mother had been born by this point and it's nuts to me that it's this thing in her lifetime of like I can't marry because you've had sex with other men. That's in our lifetime. <laughs> 1969. It's oh not, no, people still have those views, yeah, but I mean yeah. like a time that that's actually set in a time. And it's supported by institutions and the mainstream culture of the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, so so we don't end on a total downer. Can we now talk about um, the club? Big Spender. Oh, we can talk about Big Spender. I also want to talk about the insane dance oh, number at okay. the club. Oh, okay, right. Let's do Big Spender and then we can end on, the on club. The, club, right. the club. So, I mean, Big Spender is like, obviously, standalone, a very, very famous song. Now, lots of people won't know that it comes from this musical. Like, it's just, it's so iconic. That, like, dun, 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 dun. That whole thing is so famous. But, like, the staging, the choreography of that number, like, the the presentation of the women as like so dead behind the eyes that it's so going through the motions. So I saw a clip from, I think the Broadway production from about 10 years ago, where it seemed like they had just totally missed the point of the number and the girls were very showgirly and they were very kind of smiley and it was all very like, oh, da, da, da. oh wow. But the original, that original staging is so powerful it's so unsettling like the way they almost seem to transform into mannequins the way they go through the motions of their lines of like oh you're so tall I just think it's extraordinary and they have these bursts of energy it's just I just think that number is exquisite it's so powerful and it's an incredible song but like the way that they are framed in that it makes them so powerful and at the same time so helpless and like it's just Oh, it's, I just think it's an incredible number. So we go then to the rich man's frog, the deeply, deeply surreal, but we have agreed, totally happening in real life. Totally <laughs> This is a totally diegetic scene we discussed over text. Uh, this isn't symbolic. It's not metaphorical. This is it's exactly not how people are dancing. In 1969, in this very elite Manhattan club. Which has a leopard. Charity has been literally picked up off the street and gone into a club with this like super famous movie star, we're told. And it's just like, here's what rich people are doing at their parties. That, as far as we know, is is the extent of what's happening narratively. And it is very much in the same way as the other films that we've discussed. It's clearly like, and I want to do this number now. So give me some story bending that makes me allowed to do this number now. But you know what, I think that... So obviously we've agreed that everything that happens in that scene is happening literally. But let's just imagine, and it's crazy, that it was symbolic or expressionist in some way of some larger point. In that crazy scenario, it's maddening 
even imagining it, but it would speak to the point of Charity feeling very alone and alienated in this very strange and unfamiliar setting. And the surrealism of that dance would hypothetically lead to the thematic feeling of exclusion from a world where she can happily belong. Well, also just that it's a window into a world that she didn't even know existed. But like, yeah, so much of that experience that she has with the movie star is just, you know, it's that thing of if my friends could see me now that she's like, these are things she hasn't even really, you know, you don't even have enough information to imagine what those things might be like. And just because we haven't spoken too much about Singing in the Rain in this section, is there a particular reason why you brought up Sweet Charity in contrast to Singing in the Rain? Or do you just want to talk about Sweet Charity? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I think there's quite a lot of connections in terms of the way that dance is used, like that so much of the storytelling is through dance and also that it feels kind of across all of them. It's not as literally about, you know, making films or making shows, but it is still this sense of there's an entertainment world or, you know, there's a there's a performance world and they are kind of showgirls. It's just they're in a, a slightly darker reality, like the, the reality that she's inhabiting is a lot less fairy tale. And I guess it's the question of, you know, if the center of your musical is someone like Don who has all of the power imaginable, you get a lighter film. When the center of your musical is someone like Charity who has almost no power, but still has optimism and still is hopeful, then you're still in this musical fairy tale world, but you maybe access a few things that are a little bit more, that have a bit more substance. Like, as much as there's still escapism and there's still kind of nonsense and it's still very much a, a platform for the musical and choreographic talents of the creatives, there's maybe a little bit more to it because it's the stakes are just real in a way that they can't be because you can't be that worried about Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly. You just, you can't bring yourself to believe that it's all going to fall apart because you just know it's not going to. It's almost like the girls from Gold Diggers what would happen after vaudeville just disappears and isn't a mainstream entertainment venue anymore? They end up in places like the Fandango. <laughs> anyway, I love Sweet Charity so much. You should. I love all the films. Yeah, this is one of the best. This is a phenomenal in terms of quartet. Yeah, yeah. In terms of guests. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so just to finish up, let's do the double bill question, which Katie won't have heard of because she's not been here before. What? film out of the three that we've chosen works best as a double bill with Singing in the Rain. No, I, uh, think, I think Sweet Charity, for the reasons Katie literally just said, made her think of it. Well, I mean, the bandwagon is obviously the closest to it. So if you're looking for something that is, you know, a bit more of the same. But yeah, Sweet Charity, for the reasons that Katie stated, Gold Diggers as a film that is set in the time that Singing in the Rain is satirizing. I mean, we commented earlier of Mike how we have one pre-code Hollywood film, one classical golden age Hollywood film, and one new Hollywood film. So all three of them make such great contrasts to the title film. I, I, I like Sweet Charity because it is dealing with, I think, the interiority and self-doubt in such a powerful way. And I think the bandwagon does this as well, but it's something that is so missing from the character of Don in Sing in the Rain. And the bandwagon, obviously, you have interiority and you have reflection, you have insecurity around mm-hmm. the Fred Astaire character. But like you said, you don't believe things are going to go badly for him, even if it's not as smooth a road as characters he's played. Charity, Godlover, is a mess. Mm. And it's such an amazing contrast. 
I also think that the style of choreography is so much more different from Kelly to Fosse than it is Kelly to Astaire. So yeah, I, I think that's place to wrap up. Katie, where can people follow you and are you working on anything at the moment? Um, people can follow me on at Katie C. Patterson on most things that you can at a person on. And I am doing a show at the Theatre Delhi in October, so that's a long way away, but I'll probably tweet about it. Well, we will retweet <laughs> it. Uh, as always, you can follow us on BCU Watch Pod on Twitter and at BCU Watch Podcast on Instagram. Thanks as always to our esteemed producer, Jade Corbett. Thank you, Francesco. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening. And thank you, Charlie, for teaching us about the order in which the years came in. Oh, go fuck yourself! <laughs> <laughs>